Kubernetes community, and welcome back to the Pod Cuddle Podcast. We are coming to you just a few days before the release of Kubernetes 1.8, so exciting week around here. Tyler, how are you this week? I'm doing well, Brian. Good. So 1.8 comes out about every quarter now. We're seeing a new release from Kubernetes, huge momentum going on in the community. And we thought when new releases come out, there's there's always a lot of questions. What's in the release? Why are there certain things in the release? So we thought it would be good to talk to a couple of the folks who are very heavily involved with not only contributing to the release, but also part of the planning process, part of the, the architectural process. So very excited to have both Clayton Coleman and Derek Carr, who are really from uh, the Red Hat engineering team. Um, Clayton and Derek, why don't you guys introduce yourselves, tell folks what your role is both uh, within Red Hat, but more importantly, what you guys are doing to help drive Kubernetes. Sure. So my name is Clayton Coleman. I'm an architect for OpenShift and Kubernetes uh, at Red Hat. And it's really just a fancy way of saying that I've been involved in Kubernetes for so long that somehow I, I remember more stuff that we talked about over the you know past three or four years ever since we, we started this. And I try to kind of help keep the community moving in the right direction, um, make sure that people can contribute, make sure that the technical side uh, tip top that people are finding value in Kubernetes and uh, also work to help kind of pull together the, uh, the Kubernetes ecosystem into something a little bit more formal than it has before. Derek? So um, Derek, and uh, I guess my role here at Red Hat is I guess my technical group lead for a set of teams that span our work in container runtimes up through the Kubernetes project itself. Practically, uh, I'm probably the second person that Clayton pulled in from Red Hat to go and join the Kubernetes effort. So I have a, a long history with the project prior to well before the 1.0 days. So like Clayton, I've touched many parts of the project that I can't focus on as much on a day-to-day basis and spend a lot of time now trying to help others carry the, the baton forward. But I guess, generally speaking, uh, I have a wide purview on a wide area of the project. And we uh, we actually went uh, went and found a video of you guys from I think it's 2015. It was an event out in California where you guys were sort of showcasing um, the very first time uh, I think sort of publicly what we were doing around Kubernetes. It was one of the the big public Kubernetes meetups, and you guys were were showing demonstrations of that. So you guys have obviously been working on this for for quite a while, and and that was kind of the reason we wanted to to bring you on, not so much from a Red Hat perspective, but from a community perspective, just to get a sense of, you know, here's another release. How, you know, how does, how does this whole process work? And so we're so, you know, really interested in digging in with you guys, kind of your experience over the last three years of how Kubernetes has evolved, what decisions get made and so forth. So, so first off, thanks for being on the show. Let me uh, add to that welcome as well. Uh, we're glad to have you on the show. Uh, as you were going through, you know, kind of your histories on the project, uh, clearly, you, you've both been in, involved for for quite a long time. One of the things you you both do in the community is you're you're very heavily involved, or lead or co lead some of the the SIGs and and working group. Um, can you kind of talk about what you know that piece of the project is for listeners that aren't aware of you know like what the SIGs do or, or working groups? Sure. So Kubernetes is more loosely structured than you might be you might be familiar with from some other open source uh, projects and. Some of that was early on, the, the folks getting involved in Kubernetes from the very beginning tended to have particular areas of focus, engineers from both Red Hat and Google, as well as from CoreOS and many of the other companies that uh, kind of companies and individuals who started contributing. The project kind of self-organized around uh, groups of people working on related areas of the code over time. We formalize that into the special interest group concept. Special interest groups own portions of Kubernetes 
uh, they're responsible for making the decisions and helping ensure that the users, bugs and features and requests for features and the, the day-to-day operation of the, the code in the project are moving forward. And they also have grown from their original beginnings more as technical collaboration areas to uh, places where people working in the ecosystem can collaborate and discuss. Uh, folks do a lot of demos at meetings, showing off the things they've built and bouncing ideas off each other. And as we've gotten a little bit more formal about Kubernetes governance, the SIGs really are the, um, we intend the SIGs to be the heart of the Kubernetes project. They're the people who who care very deeply about a particular area of the project and help move it forward. Yeah, I guess I would add a little bit to that. It was just, you know, from my perspective in the beginning of Kubernetes, the the process was really organic and the community was really small. And, you know, just getting a version one of a release out it is a big effort that requires a bunch of people to work across a lot of domains. Um, but I think pretty quickly, as you tried to like specialize or improve particular aspects of the project, naturally there's just people that develop interest. And, you know, my perspective is the SIGs really formed out of that. It was just post 1.0 might even have my history long a little bit, but pretty soon after 1.0, it became clear that like people needed to specialize to kind of whether you were looking to drive performance and scale or drive uh, reliability on the node or or really evolve our API machinery because uh, these these basically required a dedicated set of folks who could look at these problems and collaborate more closely. And I think the the SIGs model, independent of any of the governance aspects, is really just about how do we get the groups of people that are thinking about like-minded topics collaborating together. No, it makes sense. It's it's uh, it's it's grown to be to have so much capability that, that you have to be able to break it down into areas that people feel comfortable with. You guys have both mentioned uh, governance a little bit. You know, there's some talk uh, about how Kubernetes is, is, I mean, it's always been an open project, but it's moving towards a new governance model or kind of an open governance model, this this idea of a steering committee. Um, Derek, I know that you're on the, the ballot this week. Uh, everybody's voting for the steering committee. Can you give us a sense, either one of you give us a sense of, you know, what, what's going to be the role of the steering committee? What's its intention to do? And, and what's the expectation of what that group will do beyond maybe what's already happened over the last couple of years? Yeah, sure. So the Kubernetes community today is, you know, really awesome. If I think about it, we, we've been fortunate to have a group of people who work really well together. And I think we've avoided a lot of significant conflicts that folks couldn't resolve, you know, themselves. And I think it's, it's a benefit to just the quality of the community that's grown around the project to been able to operate in that mode for so long. I think generally speaking, as the project now has matured and more and more participants are, are, are participating, eventually we, we know that we need to get more uh, formalized definitions of, of roles and responsibilities and, and how we manage the project across SIGs and figure out ultimately who are the decision makers because I think everyone can, can say that the current model won't scale or last forever. We, we basically need to bootstrap a formal governance model that we can iterate on moving forward across the SIG. So uh, I think Clayton is a member of the, the bootstrapping committee for this. Maybe he wants to elaborate a little bit more on some of the initial problems that are being faced. But generally speaking, it's just how do we build a, a governance model above the SIG to decide what is managed in the Kubernetes project, how we, how we manage behaviors within the Kubernetes project, and how we you know, ensure that the project can grow sustainably. Yeah, it's a, kind of a testament to how positive and open the Kubernetes community is, is that we've managed to go this long without um, having to push through and, and set up some of these more formal structures. But obviously, it's, it's better for everyone to have some of that formalism in place. And so, as Derek said, the how do you bring the SIGs 
together. Uh, so how do you help SIGs make decisions? How do you help them trade off various benefits? There was a lot of questions being raised where we were trying to decide how big and what the scope of Kubernetes should be and to lay some ground rules that would make it easier for people to have a point of reference when they made decisions about whether a new feature should be added or whether we should work on an extension mechanism. And those really, more than anything else, that drove the desire to ensure that we had a really really clean and open way of resolving discussion points between the SIGs. And like many of the other open source communities recently, uh, it's very important. I think everyone on the Bootstrap Steering Committee felt that it's really important that the Bootstrap Steering Committee and that potentially the steering committee that will replace it not be a body ruling from up high, but instead a, a system for making sure that different SIGs and everybody in the community can orient themselves. I think we've said this several times uh, on the Bootstrap Steering Committee, but if this is about a group of people making decisions for other people, it probably failed. If it's a group that helps everyone make decisions together, then it'll succeed. And so keeping the SIGs as the focus for Kubernetes, the focus of the community, and making sure that that's humming along um, and Kubernetes continues to be one of the most successful open source projects in the world today, it's so important to us that it's, it's the right time to, to bring this uh, structure into, into being. I mean that that makes that makes a lot of sense uh, with a project that's growing as quick as Kubernetes is, and, and that leads right into my next question, which is, you know, there's all these contributors, you know, there's tons of commit, all the big companies are getting involved in it, individual contributors working on their own. There's so many different focus areas. What's the process today for deciding in, in a specific release? So say here 1.8, like what what makes the release? What's important to make that release? What should get dropped? Like how are those decisions made today? It's pretty distributed. The there's a uh bunch of overarching themes uh, that folks uh, like Brian Grant from Google and myself and others try to to talk about across the SIGs. So extensibility, uh, making the project stable, improving the contributor experience, things that we actually have SIGs that own, but also the other SIGs do need to be able to help that. Um, those themes tend to get, we kind of tend to loosely work across the SIGs to make sure that the themes are being tracked. And then really within each SIG, there's a lot of cross-coordination between the SIGs. Uh, as Derek said, it's, it is a really organic process. It's engineers and contributors and users working together to try and push the project forward. And there's areas of the project that are racing full speed ahead, like SIG node. You know, every release is building out the capabilities and the reliability of the node, adding support for extension container runtimes. Uh, like cryo uh, as a you know alternative container runtime to docker is gonna it's very rapidly approaching its release status and there's been a ton of great coordination between folks in sig node and outside the community and on other sigs i think it tends to be more user driven so there's there's smaller items so for instance sig apps which i participate in is working across many different groups of uh, many different projects that are in the ecosystem around Kubernetes for making it easier to build and develop software on top of Kubernetes to make it easier to iterate on your applications. A lot of those efforts are motivated people within the SIG coming together as a group, debating priorities and trying to find sponsors and people who can commit to helping make these features happen. And uh, for the most part, it's been a fairly effective process for getting things that users need. I've I've been really impressed that for something as, as loosely uh, organized as it is, that it makes a ton of progress every release. So I'll give my perspective a little bit. So I, I co-lead SIGNode with Don Chen from Google. And I think what 
Clayton described as pretty much the way it goes. I think at least on SIGNOTE itself, I feel like we're the intersection of a lot of different SIGs where you sometimes feel like you're getting requirements from, say, storage or scheduling for things that you, you need to get done to make the project succeed. And then I think practically where we are in the project right now is I think it's important that we grow the reviewer pool as much as the contributor pool. And oftentimes it seems like the, the list of things we want to be able to go chase and, and run down and support are, are primarily being limited by the amount of people we can put eyeballs on pull requests and sufficiently review. And uh, I think that's a, a major problem for the project moving forward that we need to look to address is just how we simplify the contributor level and, and diversify our, our review of pool. But each SIG tries to handle that burden as best it can within their domain. As you guys have said, it is sort of a, an amazing feat that for something that's been sort of loosely coupled and, and we've got different groups coming in at, at different times, you guys have been involved with it for three plus years. Some of the Google folks like Brian Grant for longer than that and others just you know in the last couple of months, it's uh, at least from the outside world, it looks like a very you know smoothly running, well-oiled machine. So so that part is very, very cool. Let's let's dive into 1.8 a little bit. Um, you know, the, the official announcement should come out this week. There's a whole bunch of alpha features, beta features, and then sort of stable or what people might call GA features. If somebody was was looking at this, um, just kind of coming in and looking at it, what are the bigger features or the, the kind of main headline types of things that, that you guys expect to hear people talking about with 1.8? Yeah, sure. So I, I can touch on the areas that, that have excited me in 1.8, and I think they're along two lines. Uh, there, there's some work that for folks who aren't familiar, when when a feature is being done in, in Kubernetes, it, it kind of graduates along three phases, like an alpha, a beta, and a stable phase. So anytime we're able to promote certain features to beta or a stable, it's like a, from my view, a real win, because it means that we're going to really grow the ability for our users to actually take advantage of these features and beyond just playing with them. So within say like SIG autoscaling, I think we've done some work to really improve the horizontal pod autoscaler uh, to make set the groundwork for it to support scaling on things beyond just the traditional metrics it can scale on today. So that, that's been an area of interest to me over a, a long time. I think within SIG API machinery, uh, there's been a lot of good iterative work around making the platform more extensible. There were improvements to what had previously been called third-party resources that would now be custom resource definitions. That makes it more of a first-class entity in the project or at the point of extension, which I think is really important to grow the ecosystem. And then uh, within my own domain, at least within, say, Signode, I was really excited by some work that we've been doing across the community to support more workloads better without necessarily sacrificing reliability. So within the life of Cube and Signode, I think really we spent a good portion of the release cycles between 1.0 and 1.6, trying to just get the node reliable. And now at this point, we've really had the chance to pivot and start look, looking how we can actually support a broader set of workloads more optimally. So across the community, we've been doing a lot of great work with Red Hat and Intel and Google and NVIDIA to add features like um, static CPU pinning so we can get better latency guarantees of your applications. Or uh, there's a new plugin model called the device plugin model, which will let you, an ecosystem of vendors, go and write device plugins to expose their custom hardware devices, so whether that's GPUs or custom NICs. I think a lot of exciting work is being done in this release this support that. And, and those are the areas that have been really particularly interesting to me in the Cube 18 cycle. And I've Cube 18 was in many respects a stabilization release to bring more of the features that we've been working on over the last few releases to a final state. Uh, the biggest one to me is extensibility. And that's been a long running arc for 
for many releases, Red Hatters and Googlers and um, folks from the community have spent most of the last three or four releases doing a lot of work to enable not just the core Kubernetes APIs to run well, but to make it possible to extend Kubernetes to add new APIs. That makes it possible for people to experiment with new features and to distribute those so that you can plug in new APIs to Kubernetes. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the work started with third-party resources, which became custom resource definitions. Those graduated into GA status uh, in the last release. And as people build on top of this, we added API extensibility and promoted that. We've been working very heavily on making it possible to provide your own webhook for injecting policy into Kubernetes if you want to protect your cluster from people running certain images, or if you want to set some defaults, if you want to enable people to add sidecar pods automatically. There's a lot of really core work that's been done over the last year and a half that is finally starting to turn Kubernetes from an all-in-one monolithic binary to a project that allows, allows a lot of the exploration, addition of new features, extensibility to happen in a broad context. And this is really important for a community as big as Kubernetes because people need to be able to iterate and develop on their own. So in a sense, you could say it's the uh, Kubernetes is going microservice and there's no turning back. Uh, that makes it easier for everyone in the community to build things and to try them out and then to use them as they need to. And I, we're going to keep hammering that extensibility drum because it's really important to make to make it easy to use Kubernetes, but then to adapt it. Because we want Kubernetes to be the software that that is the the kernel of the future. We want it to be uh, the heart of the the data center and the heart of the cloud uh, infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think it's funny, Clayton. We're both excited about the same things, to be honest. Like, so whether <laughs> it's on the master, you're excited that people can innovate around Kubernetes with custom resource definitions and and experiment without burdening the core. Uh, if it's in in the auto scaling domain, I mean, I'm excited that people are going to be able to start exploring how they can auto scale their apps from potentially other metrics, say beyond CPU and memory. Uh, and I think a lot of interesting things will come out of that. If it's on the on the node side, I mean, like I said earlier, I think I'm excited that people will be able to innovate around devices in ways that we were not able to expose and we won't require people to go to have to make a pull request and be blocked by by myself or Don Chen or Vish or any of the, the core maintainers in the kubelet to let their experience be met. And then also with the container runtime side, I think more and more we're we're fulfilling the promise that we have a pretty standard contract for what the container runtime interface is starting to look like for the kubelet. And and across the community, whether it's work going on with Cryo or Container D or, or the continuing work that we have going on in Docker, I think we're really proving that that model will work and ultimately allow a lot of innovation uh, below the kubelet as well as around it. In a sense, you know, this is this is something Red Hat is intimately familiar with of taking a a very promising software project and working really hard with everybody in the ecosystem from small individual projects, big companies, um, trying to find the right way to make a project that's useful for everybody and helping people build stable, reliable software. And that's what that's what we do here at Red Hat. That's what the OpenShift team does is it takes Kubernetes and makes helps make a platform that people can run on or off premise. And we think that the best way to do that is by making Kubernetes as extensible and as reliable as possible. That leads into a, uh, you know, a tough area, right? Where it's, there's extensibility is great. And, and that's, I think, you know, has, has been the ability to keep that core pretty pretty tight um, enables you know rapid development and simplicity while letting others you know kind of work on what they want to work on. 
Um, but at some point, some things do need to come into the core, right? Where it's, you know, something like, for example, like you said, exposing new devices or, you know, creating those frameworks to, you know, allow that to happen. You know, how does the project, has a community make those decisions? Because if you look at, um, you know, there's just even on the deployer side, there's, you know, we have a whole episode, we talked about the, you know, 8,000 different ways to deploy Kubernetes um, and all the tools that are available. Um, how does, you know, how are those decisions made around something, whether it's KubeADM or uh, something like Helm, like what goes, what goes in, what, you know, what stays out? How has that determined? I think there's a rule of thumb. Uh, and this is something we've talked about in SIG architecture a lot is the rule of thumb is if you absolutely 100% need this to be able to run an application on top of Kubernetes, it's part of what we would call the core. Everything else is part of the ecosystem. And I think we've We've tried to strike that balance between the plug and play model and the batteries included model. And the plug and play model has a lot of advantages, um, but you're right. If everybody has to pick and choose between which, which packaging to use, which deployment to use, there'll always be some, some question about, well, you know, you've made this too flexible or too powerful. Uh, on the flip side, with batteries included, you don't, you tend to not be very resilient to changes in features. Like, you know, there's a little bit of if you build too much in and you get it wrong, you don't have an opportunity to go back on that and you don't have an opportunity to change. So like the Linux kernel, I think we want Kubernetes uh, as a quote unquote core to be as small as possible to make it possible to run applications, maybe to focus on the APIs first and foremost, and then to make it really easily possible to, or really easy to deploy an application, deploy a cube cluster, do it on a wide range of software and things like cube admin and, um, and cops in the deployment ecosystem. I fully expect the documentation and the and the the testing and the flows around those to get better and better. But there'll always be some level of rather than take that last step and say this is the only way that you can run Kubernetes. We want to make sure that we continually challenge ourselves on that assumption that you know have we gotten Kubernetes right? I can point to lots of things in Kubernetes that will probably change six months from now. And uh, projects in the eco- ecosystem like Istio are actually a great example of. You know, Istio offers a lot of really exciting interconnection between applications, security, load balancing, really taking the the ideas from the uh, the microservices stack and making it available to all applications. There's a huge amount of potential there. If Kubernetes was so opinionated about the the core service component, it would be impossible to run Istio. And I think that's where we try to draw that line is, do we think there's a reasonable chance that two or three different ways of running Kubernetes or of installing Kubernetes or two or three different ways of doing ingress are okay because the world is a really rich and complex place. And so we, we usually try to, we try to err on the side of not being too opinionated about a particular technology or particular technology stack. I think one thing I'd like to call it a little bit is some of the experience that we've had at Red Hat around supporting some incubator projects. So oftentimes something that we decide we don't want to go into the core, you know, we as the Kubernetes community will go and choose to incubate it. And there's a process around getting involved in incubation, but typically you get paired up with a champion who's someone very familiar with the Kubernetes way and, and potentially a couple sponsors who, who will then work with that community that's incubating a feature to try to shepherd it and grow it and, and ultimately hope that it will graduate if it's considered valuable in the community. So one of the things that I've been involved with and some of uh, my coworkers here at Red Hat is around the service catalog. And so I think this is a great example of something that's been going on in the community in concert with the core to prove out the extensibility model and also drive kind of feature requirements into the core to decide how we can support 
extensions and validate that things that Cube itself is incubating, others can then build in the ecosystem. So a lot of people might not be familiar with this, but like when, when the service catalog was being built, it was really important to the original champions of the project that it be built to look like Kubernetes. So if you knew how Kubernetes works and you wanted to go and contribute to the catalog, you weren't going to get lost when looking to open a pull request there and, and figure out how the system works. But along the way, that drove a, a, a ton of requirements into like SIG API machinery um, around just explaining how to build things in a way that others who are not in core cube can build them. And uh, I think when we think about does it go in core or does it not go in core, oftentimes, sometimes we made the mistakes in the project to put something in core out of convenience than necessity. And in some cases, I can point to items that we've we've stopped and reflected and said, no, we're not going to say graduate that to stable because it was it was a decision made out of convenience than necessities. Yeah. Well, guys, listen, um, I think with that, we, I mean, we've, we've gone into a lot of things. We probably could we could sort of talk about the inner workings of how Kubernetes is getting made for, for a long time. Uh, we'll have to get you guys back on sometime soon. I think we're going to wrap it up. First off, again, want to thank you guys for, for diving into it with us. And, and more importantly, thank you for taking such a big leadership role and, and, and working with the community to make Kubernetes what it's what it's become today and, uh, and where it's going to go in the future. So with that, thank you very much. Tyler, any last thoughts? No, I mean, I think it's just the uh, the depth of kind of capabilities that are there in the in the Kubernetes community. And I think, as you heard both uh, Clayton and Derek talk about, it does have a, a really good, I guess you would say, vibe as a community overall. It seems very positive and open. And I think you hear you can hear it in, in both of their talking about how how the project has worked so far and how it continues to grow. So I think it's uh, it's got a pretty exciting future ahead of it. Well, listen, um, guys, thanks again for being on the show. Tyler, thanks for the time today. And uh, folks, we're going to wrap it up. As always, um, if you have questions, feel free to send them in. We'll get them answered in our question of the week. If you have feedback or ratings, uh, feel free to, to send those through iTunes or through Twitter or, or through email. And uh, all the details are in the show notes. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Folks, thanks as always for listening. And we'll talk to you next week.